Um, but as Cam said, we are coming to the end of the Gospel of Matthew. We've been in this book for almost a year, and we've moved pretty slowly so far. And in this last section, we're actually going to move through five chapters in a single week. And we're going to be speeding through the final week of Jesus. But the reason we wanted to do this is not just because, oh, then that way it'll fit into you know, our Easter timetable or whatever it is, but because we didn't want to miss the significance of Easter and what happens in the week leading up to it. See, I hope it's not too grim a question, but have you thought what you would do with the last week of your life? It's impossible to answer it, isn't it? Would you kind of spend like crazy on pleasure or would at that point it just wouldn't matter and you wouldn't at all? Would you have a kind of a, a quick bucket list that you'd put together? Would you resolve old conflicts? Would you get your affairs in order as they say? What would you actually do? Would you try to just be around loved ones? How would you spend that final week? It is, it is impossible to answer that, to know without actually experiencing it what you would do. But here's one thing you can know ahead of time is that what you would do with your final week would reveal so much about who you are and what mattered to you, wouldn't it? Now, if you're here and you're trying to work out who Jesus is or you have questions about Jesus, maybe you describe yourself as even skeptical or not particularly religious or spiritual, the last week of Jesus is a great place to go because it's going to reveal to you everything you need to know about who Jesus is and what he's about. Because what we're going to see in the final week of Jesus is that he was so loving that he was set and resolved to die for sinners like you and I. That's what we see in Jesus' final week. In fact, what happened to him was no accident of history. It wasn't a great tragedy that happened upon him. But we'll see in Jesus' final week that he orchestrated all things to head towards the cross. That he was relentless in his pursuit of it because he knew that it's what we needed in order to find life in God. And so I'm going to pray that as we move through chapters 21 to 26, that we would see Jesus afresh all over again. That we'd see his love for us, we would see what he suffered for us, and that we might see the, afresh just the grace of the gospel in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we know that our hearts are prone to wander, that we grow familiar and over-familiar with truths that should strike us, we get used to the gospel. We get familiar with the shocking grace that we've been shown in Christ Jesus. And so we just pray that as we study your word this morning, as we look at your son, and as we look at his final week before the cross, that we would see who you are, we'd see your love revealed in Christ, and that we'd see the sacrifice for us, that we might not miss it, but that we might be moved to peace and joy and hope, knowing that his blood was shed for us. Amen. We're going to start on this day, the Sunday before Easter. You may have heard it called if you've been around in churches or that sort of thing before, or you grew up maybe in a church, you might have heard it called Palm Sunday. And it's the Sunday before Jesus died, and by best estimates, we're talking about March 29 in AD 33. And Jesus decides that he's going to enter Jerusalem. And so he gets his disciples together on the Sunday morning, a little bit earlier than the time that we're gathering right now. And he says to them, I'm going to ride into town on a donkey. I need you to get a donkey for me. Now, it sounds like Jesus is planning the sickest party of all time, but he isn't. He's got something very specific in mind here. This isn't a party trick. He's going to do something that's deliberately provocative. See, Jerusalem was the national capital of Israel in AD 33, but it was under Roman occupation. 
but it, it had some special exemptions under the kind of under Roman rule. Basically, Jerusalem, the, the city itself, was able to, to sort of be run as almost like a mini sovereign state. And so there was a group called the Sadducees, and they had all the official power that was given to them by the Romans. So the Romans were like, these are the guys who get to run the town. They ran the temple. They had their own little special police force called the Temple Guard. They're the group of people that they get to come and arrest Jesus later on. And these guys were given power by the Romans, but basically they were suck-ups to the Romans. And because of that, they weren't that popular with the people. In fact, the religious leaders who were most popular with the actual people were a group called the Pharisees. And if you want a schoolyard illustration of what was really going on here, you can think of it in this way. The Sadducees, the ones who were given power by the Romans, were kind of like the student SRC, the ones that the teachers picked. And they have official authority, but they're kind of the milk monitors of the school. And the Pharisees were more like the cool kids, the ones who had actual social traction and influence. So these were the two kind of powerful groups within Jerusalem, one with the official sanctioned power, the one with the unofficial approval of the people. And Jesus is going to ride into town and he's going to upset them both in classic Jesus style. And the reason he's going to do this is because he knows that people are starting to talk about him. That people are starting to wonder if Jesus is this promised king. See, in the Old Testament, God's people were promised that one day a king would come through who would restore Israel. And the whole book of Matthew, I don't know if you remember all the way back to week one when we started here in the high school last year, the first point that Matthew's trying to make is Jesus is this king. He's that Messiah. Everything about his life, his teaching, his ministry points to the fact that Jesus is this king. And Jesus wants to make this point publicly now. And he knows that the Jewish people know their Bibles. And he knows that there's a text in Zechariah right towards the end of the Old Testament. In Zechariah 9.9, we read this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus knows that the people know this passage. And so he's going to come into Jerusalem, the capital during the time leading into Passover, one of the biggest moments in the Jewish calendar. So everyone has traveled to Jerusalem and the city is packed and he's going to ride in on a donkey to say, I'm the guy, I'm the Messiah. And what happens? The people get it. They see him ride into town and they start calling out, hail the king. They get that Jesus is making a comment here. They get what passage he's referring to and they get the fact that he is claiming to be the Messiah and they believe he is. And so there's just this outpouring of joy and celebration as Jesus rides into town on this donkey, which from the outside would seem like such an obscure thing, but for the Jewish people, they knew what it meant. And at this point, Jesus takes his disciples aside after all of the, the, the hurrah that's gone on, and he explains to them again that he's going to die, and they still don't get it. And as they're heading out of town, they go past the temple, because Jesus is going to do something ne there the next day on the Monday, and he's kind of doing a bit of a reconnaissance trip. He checks out what's happening at the temple. And then they head out to a place called Bethany, which is about three kilometers east of Jerusalem. So think Double Bay from the city. That's about how far out they've gone. And he heads out of town and he prepares for a confrontation the next day. So then it's Monday, March 30, AD 33. And Jesus heads into Jerusalem. And on the way there, he does something really weird. He wants breakfast and he wants to get it from a fig tree and the tree has no fruit and so he curses it. 
and his disciples have no idea what's going on. They pretend like they understand what's happening and they're just like, okay, Jesus does this kind of thing from time to time. He's too powerful to challenge about it. Let's just go with it. And they walk into town, but they'll see the significance of it later. But Jesus now goes back into Jerusalem and he goes back to the temple that he checked out the day before on Sunday afternoon. And he goes into the temple knowing what he's going to find there. He's going to find people who are making profit from all the religious pilgrims who have come to town in preparation for Passover. They're going to sell them things. They're going to make money out of God's temple, the place that was meant to be for the worship of God alone. And they're there making money in the temple courts. And so Jesus comes in and he sees these prophetess who are preying on God's people and he gets a whip of cords and he gets grown men and drives them out of the temple. And he says to them, how dare you make my father's house a den of robbers? And publicly confronts them and sends them out. Now, what is Jesus doing here? This is the equivalent of like, you know, in a movie when the good guy goes to like, there's always a bikey HQ bar and they go there and they shoot it up because they know that this will send a message to those higher up the chain. You know, that kind of scene. I, I mean, I can't think of a specific movie, but it's got to be about 50 this is what Jesus is doing. He goes in there knowing that these people are here with the approval of the Sadducees who run Jerusalem. He shakes it up. He sends them out. He says, this is my father's house, claiming to be the son of God and claiming to have the authority to kick them out of the temple. And he knows that it's going to be heard about. He knows that it's going to be talked about. And he knows the Sadducees are going to find out about it. And so he does this. And then again, they head back out to Bethany for the night where they're staying. And then the next day, it's Tuesday. Tuesday, March 31, Jesus comes back to the temple that he has just caused a ruckus at. So you see what Jesus is doing here, right? Every time, keeps coming back into town, causing a new stir. So now he comes back to the temple where he has just kicked out all these people the day before, and now he's going to teach. And guess who's waiting for him when he gets there? The Sadducees and the Pharisees. And they're there and they're lining up, again, like bad guys in the movie, taking turns at having a go at Jesus. And everyone's got their favorite kind of like journalist gotcha arguments, right? You can hear them. It's almost they sound rehearsed. So the Sadducees come up to Jesus and they're like, on what authority do you do this stuff? And Jesus, again, traps them and humiliates them publicly. Then the Pharisees have a question where they're trying to trap Jesus. They say to him, hey, Jesus, should people pay tax to Caesar? Because they know that if Jesus says yes, then people are going to be like, see, he's sold out to the Romans. But then if he says no, then they can go and dob on him to the Romans and get him busted with them. So they think they've got him trapped. But Jesus says, pass me a coin. And he says, whose insignia is on this? And they say, Caesar's. And he says, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And again, completely evades them and humiliates them publicly. And they keep coming at him and they've got all these questions and arguments to hit him because they're hoping to expose Jesus in front of the crowd. But instead it backfires and the Sadducees and the Pharisees are publicly embarrassed. And if that's not enough, after having argued with them back and forth, Jesus, having silenced them completely, then goes on to teach about them in front of them. He teaches the people publicly and says to them, these Sadducees and Pharisees look really holy and they look like God's religious people and they pretend like they have authority and like they speak on behalf of God. But he says they are whitewashed tombs. That is, outwardly they look all right, but inwardly they are graves. And he says, don't listen to them and don't trust them. And we are told at that point in Matthew's Gospel, 
It says in Matthew 22:46, it says, And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So they've stopped trying to challenge him in public now. They've been embarrassed enough times that they're going to just let it go. And Jesus has, holds full court in the temple and teaches at will. And then at the end of the day again, they go out to Bethany. And the next day they come back. So now it's Wednesday, April 1. We're getting closer to Easter Friday. And Jesus is now doing his habit of teaching at the temple every day. So every day he causes a stir and every day he goes back into the epicenter to teach again and again and again. And the people are just wrapped in what he is saying. They sit before him and listen to him because he speaks as one with authority, not like they're hypocritic teachers of the law. Instead, Jesus speaks as one who has all authority and so they listen to him. But at this point, even though it seems like everything's gone quiet, it hasn't. The Sadducees and Pharisees, feeling like they've run out of options to confront Jesus publicly and worried that he's now gaining traction and popularity with the people, decide that they only have one course of action left. Look at what they do in Matthew 26, 1-5. It said, When Jesus had finished saying these things, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days of the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now you might have heard it said previously that on the Sunday, the crowds that cheered for him then later were the ones baying for his blood and his crucifixion on the Friday, but it's not exactly true. Remember, everyone is flooding into Jerusalem because it's Passover. And so everyone who was there on Sunday are likely people, tourists probably isn't quite right, the right term, but pilgrims who have come to town for this particular moment. And they're the ones who are hearing Jesus teach every day. They're the ones that Jesus is gaining traction with. But did you hear what the, 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 Pharisees, or the Sadducees are planning? What they want to do is they want to wait till the crowds have started to dissipate and started to head back to their hometowns on the Friday. After they've had the Passover meal, people will start to leave and they said, that's our time to strike. That's when we're going to get Jesus. Because if we do it now, the crowds might turn on us, but we're going to wait until the moment is right and they'll do it in stealth. There's nothing about their actions that speak of integrity or holiness or something befitting of God's people and the leaders of his people. They're going to crucify his son. And at the end of Wednesday, again, Jesus leaves Jerusalem. And now it's Thursday, April 2. And we're told in the Gospel of Matthew, this was the day, the first day of the festival of unleavened bread. And it's the day when people were preparing for Passover. So they're going, to, they're going to share the Passover meal together, a tradition that God's people have held for centuries. And it's to commemorate the fact that God saved them from under the wicked rule of Pharaoh of Egypt and how he miraculously brought them out of that land and rescued them. And in particular, they share the Passover meal, the reminder that they were saved by God. And look what we read in Matthew 26, 17 to 19. It says, On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus directed him and prepared the Passover. Now why is all this happening? Jesus wants to eat the Passover meal with his disciples in Jerusalem. 
At the same time, he knows of the gathering conspiracy to kill him. So his plan is to enter the city at night in secret. And so he says to two of his disciples, go into the city and speak to a certain man. In other Gospels, uh, the description, I think, is uh, along the lines of go and speak to someone, a man who's holding a water jug over his head. And again, that sounds like go into Balmain and find the guy with the shoes. But you can see, you can see from Matthew and even from uh, the Gospel of Mark where it is described in that way, that Jesus has previously organized this. He's planning to head into the city of Jerusalem secretly. He doesn't want to cause a stir this time. Remember, every day previously, he's gone right to the epicenter, to the temple to cause a stir. But this time he wants to go in in secret. He's going at night and he's organized things and arranged a room for them to meet secretly so that they go in without being detected. And so they go in there to celebrate Passover. And in Matthew 26, 20, we read this. It says, When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. So these are his twelve disciples, the ones who have followed him everywhere for almost three years. They've seen everything he's done. They've seen the miracles he's performed. They've heard the teaching that he's preached. And it says, And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. A son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him to have not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, just in case you hadn't caught that yet, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus said, You have said so. What a strange turn of events. Why would Jesus go to these great lengths to enter the city secretly, knowing that he's bringing with him the guy who's going to betray him? It seems like it kind of defeats the purpose. Why is Jesus doing all this if it's the case that he knows that the one who's going to sell him out in the end is with him? That Judas, the guy who's going to betray him, who's already organized with the religious leaders to sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, that guy is in his crew and he's bringing him with him into town. Why is he doing it? Well, he's not doing it just to create some kind of a conversation killer. I mean, you can imagine the shock of eating the Passover meal with Jesus and mid-meal, Jesus says, one of you in this room is going to betray me. But he's not doing it just for shock tactics. And he's not doing it just because he wants to sneak in a meal before his last uh, day before death. He wants to do it because he wants to demonstrate to them in Jerusalem, in the capital, the meaning of the death that he's about to die. So why does he want to eat the Passover meal with them? Because he wants to explain to them that he's not going to die just as some kind of... Uh, you know, a tragic kind of human figure who was a great leader and selfless but was taken by unjust powers. He wants them to know that his death is going to be a sacrifice on their behalf. And so this is why he does this. Look at what he says in Matthew 26. It says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is using the Passover meal to explain to them the kind of death he's going to die. See, the Passover was that they sacrificed an unblemished lamb in the place of their firstborn child, so that death would pass over their household. 
That's what the Passover was. It literally was the passing over of death. There was a sacrifice. You painted the blood on your doorpost as a sign that a sacrifice had been made in order to spare another life. And now Jesus is saying, I am the Passover lamb. I am the one whose blood will be spilled so that others may be saved, so that the wrath of God may pass over them, so that they may be, found, um, they may be given forgiveness. That's why Jesus has gone to all these lengths to go into the city to do this. So that when, after his death and resurrection, they'll get it. They won't miss the significance of it. They'll understand why it is that Jesus had to die and why it is that he's been bringing this whole week to a head. Why it is that Jesus has gone into town and caused a stir and upset the religious leaders all because he plans to die on our behalf. And so after this, he washes his disciples' feet. He, he teaches them about what's to come and they sing together. And after that, they depart to the Mount of Olives. And here's where we see Jesus, the most distressed we've ever seen him. Look what happens as they head to Gethsemane. In Matthew 26, we read, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. After Passover, and having calmly dealt with the fact that one of his closest friends was going to betray him, even to death, he goes with them to pray in a garden. And at this point, Jesus asks that his disciples would pray for him. And as far as I can tell, this doesn't happen anywhere else in any of the Gospels. And this should have been a sign to them that something really significant was going on. If you've got a friend who only ever calls once, and you've got 10 missed calls from them, you know that something's up. I mean, if they're one of those ones who's always doing that, it's a bit boy who cried wolf, right? But if someone is doing that significantly for the first time, you think, wow, something must really be up. Now, this should have been a sign to the disciples that, that Jesus, something is going on here. Jesus doesn't normally ask us to pray for him, but they totally miss what's happening and they fall asleep. And he comes back to his friends who he asked just once for support and they can't carry him. They've fallen asleep. And he does it a second time and then a third. And not only that, but he tried to explain to them what kind of strain he was under. He says, I'm so sorrowful. I'm so crushed by this that I actually feel like I'm going to die. I don't know if you've ever experienced a stress or anxiety that significant. Jesus says, I feel like at this moment I could die. But they miss it. See, we see here that Jesus didn't feign his humanity. When Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh, he wasn't playing dress-ups for fun. He's like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to be a human for a while, see what that's like? 
Jesus came and inhabited full humanity. And he experienced genuine fear and terror here. Jesus says he's sorrowful to the point of even death. And the question is, well, why is he so sorrowful? Because you might think, well, obviously it's because he knows that the next day he's going to die. Any of us would be pretty stressed about that. But in truth, there were many early Christians who went to their death somewhat serenely. Even the first recorded death in the Bible of a Christian, of a follower of Jesus. So Stephen dies in Acts chapter 8. And he goes to his death reasonably serenely, praying for the people who killed him. Now there's something else going on here. Why is Jesus so stressed? Why is he so distressed? We well, can see it in his prayer. He prays, Father, would you take this cup from me if there's any way? And the cup is a significant metaphor in the Bible for the wrath of God. We see it in, in prophets like Jeremiah. That God's wrath will be poured out on the nations is signified by the pouring out of a cup. And we see that Jesus is not going to die just an ordinary death, but he's going to face the wrath of God, the anger of God, at the sin and injustice in the world. And it will be poured out on Jesus, that he will drink the cup of God's wrath and drink it down to the dregs. The reason Jesus is feeling the fear here is because he knows what he is about to experience. As he kind of peers over the edge, over the cliff edge of the abyss that he's about to dive into, the terror is brought forward and he feels it. And I just want you to think for a moment here. Just think on how alone Jesus felt in this moment. So his friends don't get it. Well, that's one thing. But not only that, that he knows that he is about to be abandoned by his heavenly father. That he's about to experience the wrath of God. There's going to be a break in the triune relationship that has never happened before. And Jesus feels it. Just to give you some sense of it, think of it in this way. Well, the moon landing in, in 1969 involved three astronauts. So it was Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and... Yeah, that poor guy. Who had it? Michael Collins. Thank you. That poor bloke who was a part of <laughs> making history. And everyone's like, I just... Yeah, the other guy. The other guy. Now, the poor other guy who drew the short straw, the reason we don't remember him is because Aldrin and Armstrong got to land on the moon while he sat in a tin can and floated around the moon. Now, part of what he had to do it was to sit in the moon's orbit until it could sort of redock with the, with the moon landing vessel. But there was one part of the orbit where there would be a dark spot in communications where he'd completely lose contact with any human. And at that point, he was the most isolated human who has ever existed. So he's at least 5,500 kilometers from the two who are on the moon, let alone the rest of humanity back on Earth. Now in that moment, once he lost communication, if anything went wrong, that would be it. He would sail off to his own death without any way or any, any hope of finding any help. Now I don't know if you can imagine what it would feel like to be that isolated. But that is just a fraction of what Jesus is experiencing here in Gethsemane. He knows he's about to be abandoned, that he will cry out and find no help, so that when you and I cry out, we'll find forgiveness in God. Jesus will be abandoned so that we might be adopted in. Jesus will experience complete isolation, separation, and death that we might find life in him. And this is what we get to celebrate at Easter. That Jesus knowingly and willingly not indeliberately or accidentally, went to the cross for us, for you, for me. 
that he knew what he was getting into. That in fact, it was the whole design of his ministry. All of it had been building up to this point. And we see in the final week that Jesus is resolved to make it happen. He doesn't reluctantly go there, though he feels the fear of it. He goes there knowing that he would save us. And so I want you to pray that after this, that we as a church wouldn't miss this moment. That as Easter comes by, kind of like Cam was saying, Christmas has its own vibe sort of going on. And look, you can, you can very easily miss the meaning of Christmas and all the chaos of it. But so often Easter goes by as just another long weekend. And we have, we have a fair few of them in Australia. But for a follower of Jesus, for a believer, now there is no, there's no command in Scripture, there's no stipulation that these dates should be the ones that we specifically set aside. But it's a moment in the church calendar that has always been there so that as followers of Christ, we, not, we, might, not get, we might not miss the message of Easter. We might not miss the gospel. We might not miss the heart of God for us in Christ. So let's pray that over this week and over this time that the gravity of the grace of God would be upon us. That we would understand how much we are loved in Him and that it might transform us. That we might pray for our friends and family who don't know this grace. That over Easter we might have a chance to actually bring them along to hear the gospel, maybe for the first time or maybe for the 50th time but that it might actually strike them anew. And in a moment, we're going to take communion. And I want you to imagine what it would be like for that friend or family member, for them to actually be sharing communion with you one day, knowing and experiencing the hope of Jesus, just like you do if you're a follower here of Jesus. And so I'm going to pray for us. And after that, I'm going to lead us in communion together and explain what that is. So if you're here and new or new to Christianity or things like that, don't stress. We're going to go through it at an even pace, but I'm going to pray for our time now. Let's pray. Father, we just praise you for Easter. We praise you for Jesus and his love for us, for his resolve to go and die for us. We just thank you that this is a love like no other, that your love is perfect and enduring, that it's redeeming and saving. We pray that as we celebrate Easter together as a community, that we might make every effort to remind one another of, what, of the love that we have in you, the life-changing, life-transforming, life-giving love of Christ. That we might remember that in him we have life indestructible, that while he suffered death, we find life. And Father, we pray all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.